The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. For the last century, a violent group of heretics have tried to undermine our way of life. With your ship, I can deliver a final decisive attack. I can end this conflict forever. War. That was the glorious mission you were talking about? I'm trying to save my people. Why do I have the feeling these heretics would say the same thing? They might very well. But it doesn't change what they are. Enemies of the truth. Your truth. There's only one. How many people do you intend to kill with my ship? <laughs> your species is obsessed with numbers. A characteristic of your misguided belief that the secrets of the universe can be revealed through science. This may sound barbaric to you, but it doesn't matter how many heretics die. When the Makers return, only the faithful will survive. Non-believers will be swept away. Not only Trianans, but every race within the Chosen Realm. Doctrines like that make it real easy to wipe out everyone who doesn't agree with you. You're wrong. It's not easy. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, April 14th, 2011. I'm Robert Vaughn. I'm Bob Metz. And you're listening. This is just right on CHW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now till noon. No, no. Not right wing. Just right. Fade into color. Color into black and white. Under the bedclothes. Everything will be and welcome to the show today. And it's going to be a special show because we have a special guest. In our studio today, we have Professor Salim Mansour. And Salim has been working at the University of Western Ontario in the Department of Political Science, uh, born in Calcutta, India, and um, Sun Media columnist, author of Islam's Predicament, Perspectives, Perspectives of a Dissident Muslim member of the Board of Directors for the Centre for Islamic Pluralism out of Washington, D.C., senior fellow with the Canadian Coalition for Democracies, a founding member of Canadians Against Suicide Bombing, academic consultant with the Centre for Security Policy in Washington, D.C., consultant with CETA, the Canadian International Development Agency on Developmental Issues, and contributor to academic journals on foreign policy matters and areas studied, studies of the uh, Middle East and South Asia. He was also a co-candidate for the Canadian Alliance back in the 2000 federal election with myself here in London. I ran in London Fanshawe and Salim ran in London West. Welcome, Salim. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. And so, Bob. by the way, we should point out this is uh, Salim's third appearance on Just Right. That's correct, yes. And, first uh, with myself. The last time was almost two years ago, almost to the day. We're probably a couple of days off. I, for a moment, thought Bobby had forgotten <laughs> no, me. I hadn't forgotten you about you for a moment, that's for sure. Um, now, w- Salim is actually quite um, prolific, and he's been appearing in the London Free Press as well as uh, others, uh, all of the other Sun uh, media newspapers, Toronto Sun, etc., Calgary, Edmont- Edmonton, Montreal. All over the country and in a lot of other smaller newspapers at the Sun Media and uh, Quebec Corps Control. So he's well read here in this country and well known to many people. And of late, since the um, uprisings in northern Africa and, and other Arab countries, um, we have 
at the Arab Spring. Now, we've covered this on the show, and in the last few shows we've covered the Arab Spring, but I'd like to get uh, Professor Mansour's uh, opinion on it. First of all, Salim, is Arab Spring an appropriate title for the revolution that's going on there? Do you really... Spring brings to mind something growing, flowering, blossoming, something positive. Do you, th- do you see that the Arab Spring is actually those things? Well, um... I don't think uh, it is uh, positive in the way you just mentioned it, that entirely, but it is a confusing situation. It is spring only in the calendar sense, I would say, rather than in the sense of what you ascribe, that something new is blossoming. Something new might well blossom, you know, I mean, the uh, historical movements uh, cannot be predetermined, and that's the wonder of politics. Nothing is predetermined, at Mm. least those of us who believe in the issue of freedom as a principal driving force. So something positive may eventually come out, but what what the Arab Spring represents, uh, in fact, this is maybe the second or the third act in the last decade, if you mark it off. I mean, this is going to be the 10th year of 9-11, so it's a decade gone by. Uh, there was a movement soon after uh, the regime change in Iraq. We saw that happening in Lebanon. At that time, it was called the Cedar Spring, and then that sort of died out, and there were movements in other parts. Um, but what is happening right now is, I think, that finally, the hard surface of these uh, tyrannical regime is cracking up apart. What will replace it now is anybody's uh, Mm -hmm. guesswork. There's hope that maybe there will be democratic forces, particularly in a generational sense, that the people under, say, 35, you know, and and there's a huge bulk of population in the 20s, that they will, in a sense, drive this uh, spring or revolution or reform, whatever it is called, and push aside the old folks with the memories of 70, 80 years. Uh, If that happens, then that's something to celebrate but I am you know skeptical now you actually talked about Iraq in one of your previous articles where you said that freedom and democracy are slowly taking root in post Saddam Iraq which is part of Bush's legacy Um, Bush according to yourself he he questioned the policy of what was called Arab exception the Arab exception in other words the West tolerating these despots over there in return for a secure area and oil so do you see that when bush went into iraq and this planting the seeds of democracy over there such as they are that this could have very well been maybe the start of something that what's happened in tunisia and libya and well my well my sense is that history will look back at that period when bush decided to take out saddam hussein as one of the critical moments in the development of that part of the world. There was tremendous opposition to Bush, as we know, in Canada, people, 80% and more were opposed to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the United States, that became the issue in the 2008 revolution, uh, sorry, election. But uh, again, history has a long-term view, and people will look back to if the Arab world moves in the direction of opening up, as happened in 1989 in Eastern Europe, then that will be one of the critical phases of the thing. What I was writing about is that I think Iraq in some way stands apart now from the rest of the Arab world. That There has been a process of institutional development. Despite all the contention, Iraq went through three elections. People forget that. They went through their first election, which was to elect the Constituent Assembly. They wrote a constitution which the Iraqis thought was for them. 
Uh, it was not dictated from the outside. And then there was an election to elect an assembly, and now they've had a second election. So slowly, this is the process, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And again, if you put it in a comparative sense, we can look at our own history, Canada's history. We are still struggling with it, with Quebec and the rest of Canada. In the United States, you know, the question of the minority, the blacks, so on and so forth. Uh, it takes a period of time. But I think Iraq is on that direction. And when the rest of the Arab world looks at Iraq, not what the media writes, not what the Western media reports and what the media in the Arab world writes, but the people, and I have traveled through the Arab world quite a bit uh, over the last six, seven years, uh, the perspective is different. The question is, yeah, Iraq was an uh, American imposed, that's what they talk about, imposed democracy. But Iraq is going in a different direction. Why can't we? And when I asked the people, yes, it was an American imposed in the sense that Amer- if, if, if the Americans did not overthrow Bush or re- remove Bush, uh, Saddam Hussein, then he possibly would have been there. You guys had lived with this for 60 years, 50 years. In the case of Iraq, Saddam Hussein, for 30 years. Could you have removed him by yourself? And then there was silence. Mm-hmm. So that was the moment Saddam was being was removed and a whole new process began and Bush is now gone but that fact that Iraq is on a different trajectory than say Yemen or Sudan or Saudi Arabia is a big question mark in the minds of the Arab people, right from the Atlantic, from Morocco to the Persian Gulf. Now, actually, in the last show that we had here, or was it the show before, um, I sort of came to a conclusion that really you cannot impose, using force, freedom on a culture that is not ready to accept it, that doesn't have the history of their own. Uh, Not like the Second World War, where we uh, totally obliterated Japan and they had no other choice but to accept um, the constitution we gave them and, and developed quite into a a, a remarkable free country, uh, relatively speaking. It's the same with Germany. But will the same imposition of freedom work in an Arab society which does not have, for thousands of years, does not have any um, history of the liberal democracy, the freedom that we have here in the West? How will that work? Well, that's that's a big question, Bob. And, you know, one can have... mixed opinion about this and 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 the debate is not going to be resolved i fall back to india where i was born i mean india a billion people immensely diverse 25 major language system all the religions of the world reflected you know and india has now a record of the world's largest democracy. India is not Canada, India is not United States, but India, from the moment of its independence in 1947 till now, has been a democratic state, you know. Multi-party system, open media. It took time, it has happened. And the difference is that India had 200 years of British rule. Now, the West doesn't have any more the stomach to stay anywhere and help what you're talking about, say, in an Arab world, to stay, to sustain itself and build it, you know? Mm -hmm. So the West is not into nation building. And therefore, I would say that, uh, you know, it's a mixed record. Uh, The case of Japan and Germany, Japan did not have any democratic uh, uh, experience. Japan did not have any democratic culture. But America stayed there after Second World War. I mean, you know, General General McCarthy gave them the Constitution, Mm -hmm. wrote it, and Japan became the best ally of the Western world, democracy, the second largest economy through, through the 1980s, 90s, until, you know, the difficult time. So, you know, nothing is concluded 
excluded. We cannot put a stop on this discussion and say that the Arabs didn't have it and they're not going to have it. And that's why the Iraq experiment was so important. And Iraq is different. There was no country of Iraq. I mean, this is part of the Ottoman Empire, right? Uh, World War One. I. Uh, I mean, all of these countries that we are now looking at. Except for perhaps Egypt. Uh, except for Egypt, but Egypt also was part of the Ottoman Empire, and mm-hmm. then it broke away, and then, you know, there was a British presence there. But the larger Arab world was not, you know, it was part of the Ottoman Empire. And these states were created after the World War One, and Iraq was created. And so the British were there, the British put a monarchy there, the British had a presence there, but it was a very short presence. It was like a skirmish of a couple of decades, as opposed to India, 200 years. So now the Americans went and got rid of the tyrannical forces, not because America was being, you know, very, or or Bush was being very missionary in some sense that they're going to go and do this. There was a very specific circumstance. There was 9-11 and there was a WMD issue uh, and it's gone. The question is whether we in the West will support those elements of democracy and will be discerning and careful, which is what is missing in Libya, which is all totally messed up. When you, when you speak about imposing democracy, I, I did a quick look through one of my geography history textbooks today, yeah. and uh, I noticed that when we talk about, quote, imposing democracy, that a lot of these countries are actually have different types of governments. I noticed Egypt is shown as a republic. Libya is as a socialist uh, Jamahiriya, is that how you say yeah. it? Jamhuria, yeah. Jam- I never even saw that word before. The Sudan is a military regime. Morocco is a constitutional mor- mm-hmm. uh, uh, monarchy. The, and yet a lot of these countries have similar problems. Is the problem less related to their form of government? Or is it because of the major religion in some of these countries, which is not um, Islam in all cases. Egypt, it's also Islam and Christianity official. Um what would your is the form of government as necessary as let's say the constitution of the people rather than of the government if i can put it that way <laughs> does that make sense you know the question i'm you're asking, asking what what is the most uh, what, uh, what, important what, what element change? for change uh, yeah. Well, you know what, we don't talk about in the West as much as we should talk about. You know, democracy is a political issue, you know, form of government, so on. Mm-hmm. And, and very simply put, you know, when we talk about democracy, we're talking about some modicum of representative government, sure. that the people have a say in electing what sort of government. We're not talking about a liberal democracy. Most of these would be illiberal democracy mm-hmm. in the sense of a majoritarian rule if there is an election, what's happening in Egypt. The, the critical thing that we don't discuss for all sorts of reasons, is culture. It is culture right. the issue. That, that, maybe that's not, what I'm not, getting at. Not, not politics. Politics is also a reflection of culture. So there was no uh, a presence of an idea of democracy, say, in Japan. It's one of the oldest monarchies in the world. You know, uh, Same in India. Same in Turkey. I mean, Turkey, uh, prior to World War I, was the center of Islamic Caliphate. It was the capital. It's not a democracy. It was engaging in some sort of Western modernization. That was the interaction with Europe for over several centuries, you know. But it's only after World War One and the defeat of the Ottoman Empire and the Ottoman Caliphate that you have a new Turkey arising, which is on the Anatolian Peninsula, with Mustafa Kemal, who was a military general. George Washington was a military mm. general, so Kemal rides the horse and imposes a new form of government, which is going to be a republic, Coming by the way, Turkey, not a democracy. Yes. So, but that with Turkey, you had it rising out of Turkey itself. 
it wasn't necessarily imposed. Yes, they lost the war in yeah. the First World War. Right. However, there was no real occupation of Turkey, mm-hmm. much as there is now with, for example, well, there Iraq was some, that. but you know, yeah. we can, we can. Yeah. It's a matter of degree, though, isn't yeah. it? And yeah. now we have Turkey trying to sec. Well, being a secular country as it is. It's trying to uh, modernize itself, much like, unfortunately, Iran did the same thing mm-hmm. under the Shah. Mm-hmm. But we saw what happened there. But but this is the thing: we don't talk about culture. The question then becomes: Can a, a Muslim majority country, that is the Arab world, can a Muslim majority country be a democratic society? That is, in the sense that it weights itself or weights its its form of government and society on the will of the people, or is the culture of Islam in some way? Incompatible. We don't want to discuss that because of our own, mm-hmm. you know, shyness about these matter. I think that's the relevant question. So the problem is, as I look at it, and I, as you know, that I come from a Muslim background, and I am a Muslim. You know, Ismaili, uh, Ismaili, Muslim. What is your kind of brand of Ismaili? So majority Sunni Muslim. Yes. I, you know, I, this is my uh, 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 as a Sunni Muslim. We are the eighty percent or eighty-five percent of the world. And, and and in South Asia, which is where I come from, I was as you said, I was born in Calcutta. Islam is basically Sunni Islam, um, but particularly it's uh, Ismaili. No, no, that that where you're picking up from is is the, the people who have been writing scurrilous thing about me. Oh, you know, they want right? they, they want to you know. It's like saying somebody, oh yes, he's Christian, but he's a ah. Jehovah Witness. <laughs> Okay. You see, to drive me out, and those are the people. This is Wikipedia. You see, is that right? It, that's what it is. You better get onto Wikipedia and correct well, those guys. Well, you know who? I mean, I, I haven't got the time to trade these people. You, know? <laughs> you, I mean, you are in the public. Day. I'm in the public. I get tons of mail abuse and so on and so forth. So this is, in a sense, an attack upon me, which, which of course doesn't reflect at all on Ismaili. Ismailism is a small branch of Islam. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's a small branch. You know, Ismaili population would be less than one percent. I'm talking about we belong. I belong to the main Sunni. In Islam, there are two divisions, Protestant, Catholic, and Christianity. Mm-hmm. In Islam, two divisions, Shia and Sunni. Shia, Sunni is the majority. Shia is in Iran. And then there are branches of Shiism around the world. Ismailism is one. Okay. But I was what I was coming back to is Islam. Sorry. No, we're just going to have to take a little break here uh, right now. And it, yeah, we'll come back and talk uh, about Salim. We'll talk thing. about, yeah, we'll br- bring the story a little bit more to home, talk about uh, perhaps um, religion and whether or not it is compatible with freedom and what we can do here in Canada. So we'll be back right after this. I'll destroy the ship. Not if you help me. No. You know this is wrong. Everything he's doing... We can put a stop to it, all of it. I won't betray my faith. Your faith betrayed you. Is this really what the Makers want? To kill people by the thousands in their name? Is that the faith you were raised in? No. Then do what's right. If you don't help me, you'll be condemning your wife and child to death. Because that's how this is going to end. As long as people like Dijamat dictate What's true and what isn't? All you'll ever have is war. These people you're fighting, what makes them heretics? 
We believe the Makers created the Chosen Realm in nine days. They believe it took ten. <laughs> for that, you've been at war for over a century? And welcome back to Just Right on CHW 94.9 FM, where you can give us a call if you want to join in on the conversation at 519-661-3600. And joined with us in the studio today is Professor Salim Mansour. And just back before the break, Salim, we were talking about is Islam compatible with a free, liberal, democratic society? And what does that portend for Canada and the West? Do you want to continue the discussion in that area? What do you think? Is it is it compatible? Well, <clears throat> this is a big historical question. It's not a religious question. It's a histor- but it is bound up with religion. Uh, let me very quickly explain so that, you know, we are all on the same page. The struggle right now that we are seeing going on in the Muslim world, in fact, this is not a new struggle. It's been going on for over a century and a half. But it has taken now on now a very sharp focus because of the world media, instant communication. What's happening in Pakistan is immediately reported or have impact on what's happening in Mississauga, for instance. So the, the critical issue is that the politics of the Muslim world, and particularly of the conservative traditional forces that control the mosque, uh, is wrapped up and expressed in religious form. So all the political difficulties and political strife takes on a religious dimension. How do we separate these two things? How do we separate culture from religion? That was a big issue in the whole struggle of Reformation. I mean, if you go back and look at the history of Europe emerging out of, you know, the control of religion, the church controlling politics, the emperor lying at the feet of the at the Pope to becoming, you know, the modern Europe. That's the struggle we are seeing here right now going on. Uh, for instance, sh- people talk about the Sharia and the imposition of the Sharia, bringing in of the Sharia right here into Canada or in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, in the Middle East. Well, Sharia is not Islam, but a lot of people that is of Muslim background will insist Sharia is Islam. Sharia is the legal code that was constructed by men, always men, in the 9th, 10th, and 11th century. And what they did, they, they, they did, as, as jurists do, and as scholars do, so the 9th and 10th and 11th century Muslim scholars, like the schoolmen, like the Thomas Aquinas of the Christian world, they pulled out of the Quran the ideas upon which to construct a legal system that was requisite for their age and for their time and for the men in that power. But what they subsequently did, the people, that is the people in power, said we can no longer discuss it. This is now immutable. That Sharia is immutable. Mm-hmm. All right. So a thousand years later, what has Sharia got to do with a Muslim like me sitting in front of you? I would say nothing. Sharia is a cultural artifact that was taken out of the Quran. Except for the fact that a lot of people insist on bringing it into our society today. Uh, So that's what makes it an issue. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about it. Absolutely. And our political leaders are not prepared to fight that battle. It has, it, has, it has begun in France, by the way, but they're not prepared to fight it as it should be fought because of our own consideration, which leads to a whole different direction on multiculturalism and so on. Now, you've actually um, attacked uh, Jack Layton of the New Democratic Party for his running of candidates in the 2008 federal election, um, candidates who were favorably looking at Sharia and its imposition in Canada. 
Is that still the case with any candidates? It is today, not only know? the case with Jack Layton. It's the case with the Liberal Party. It's the case right now in places like Mississauga and in Toronto. The, the politicians are only focused upon the immediacy of winning an electoral battle. Mm-hmm. And then they believe they can take care of it. But once you're invested in it, you cannot take care of it. So they want to win the battle or, or, or corral as many of, quote, unquote, multicultural votes. So where do they go? They go to the mosque. As where did they go in the case of the Sikhs? They went into the Gurdwara, and they ended up by catering to the Khalistani Sikhs, the secessionist Sikhs who, who killed Indian prime minister, for instance. So here we are. These people are going into the mosque. They're engaging with people who come out of the mosque so that they can get their vote. And they are pandering to the lowest common denominator of what these people talk about it, you know. So you have Jack Layton quite happy to talk about multiculturalism and embrace the people who would like to propose Sharia or who insist on proposing Sharia, and same as what Michael Ignatieff is doing, and same with many other politicians, sadly to speak, even the conservatives. So all three political well, parties well, this have is candidates when, when, who are running who are, who are in favor of Sharia law. Well, well once, you, once you have conceded that, you know, we respect quote-unquote the multicultural society and what the other side is bringing, and we are not going to question it, because to question it would be to question the very basis of our own society, which is what we have now invested in, multiculturalism. So we accept bag and baggage of what the other side is bringing. Mm-hmm. We have lost our side, a capacity to discern and discriminate, S- discern and discriminate in the positive sense. You've actually I've got a bit of an article here where you say, quote, in the West, Muslims live under the most favorable conditions in their history. Here, their organizations can repudiate immoderate Muslims and terrorism and show how Islam genuinely means being at peace with the world. Instead, they engage in apologetics, blame others for their ill of the Arab Muslim world, and indulge in the politics of victimhood. That is that is an accurate description, I would take it, of what's going on with Harper, Ignatieff, and Leighton, would you say? Well, most of them, for instance. I mean, what is the critical issue uh, if we say that brings together the people who control the mosque, which are predominantly either Arabs or Pakistanis. What is it that brings them together as a driving agenda? It's a foreign policy issue which leads to the Middle East, and that is Arab-Israeli issue conflict. And then domestically, it is about maintaining their own cultural inheritance that they have brought as, a, as their baggage from the old country. Where is our politician going to recruit their candidates and their vote? They're going exactly into the mosque and into such institution and talking with them. They're not talking with people who stand up and say, you know, I'm a Muslim, but I'm a Canadian and I embrace Canadian value and that has nothing to do with Islam. They're not talking with them because such people are not bringing them the vote, but those people are part of the natural majority. So instead of talking with them and, and supporting them, they're supporting and going in, as I say, to the institutional centers where money is coming from outside side where organizations have built up, like CARE Canada, for instance, Council of American Islamic Relations. You know, in the United States, they're indicted co-conspirator in the post-9-11 cases, and their branch in Canada, you know. Or there are many other things. You have, for instance, in today's newspaper, um, the story that had been running for the last few weeks in National Post about CASMO. 
um, the Canadian Shiite Muslim organization bringing in their ayatollahs and engaging with politicians and, and people like uh, the commissioner of the Human Rights Commission in Ontario, the, the police chief and so on and so forth. And our politicians are running to them because they believe that these people can deliver a bank of vote. Mm-hmm. They possibly do. Mm-hmm. Now, you're very pro-Israeli as well. Now, I'm going to quote, actually, it's from Wikipedia, so correct me if it's mistaken, which has already been mistaken. <laughs> okay. It says here that, quoting yourself, Israel is a tiny sliver of land in a vast, tempest-ridden sea of the Arab Muslim world. And yet it is here the ancient world's most enduring story is made fresh again by Jews to live God's covenant with Abraham as told in their sacred literature. Um you say it deserves our admiration, which I believe is accurate as well. I think it deserves our admiration as a, as a liberal democracy in a, a rather troubled area. Um, are you getting much flack here in London, in Canada, for being pro-Israeli, for saying the things you're saying about um, Islam, Sharia, and uh, basically, as Barbara Kay called you, being one of the bravest Canadians? Well, I don't know whether I'm bravest or not bravest. About getting flack, you know, uh, uh, the Muslim institutional forces basically engage in ostracism, and that's the that's the whole challenge. So uh, they are not going to engage with me in a discussion. They don't want to engage with me in a discussion, which is fine, but I am in the public despite what they feel and think. And so they they use what I say in the public for their own congregation to brand me as pro-Israeli or pro-Jew or pro-Zion, whatever definition, I am not there. So there is no defense of this matter. What I'm talking about are the factual thing. I was in Israel last year. I went there for a month and I came back. I see a most open society. I walk from the Dome of the Rock, which is in, in Jerusalem. I say my prayer, evening prayer over there. Nobody is stopping me from going into the mosque over there. You know, that's not London, uh, Ontario, where, you know, if I go into the mosque, there might be a fracas. So I go in there, I say my prayer there, I walk from there to the uh, Western Wall, and I join the Jews, the mm. Jewish brothers and sisters. I stand, I say my prayer there, I go to the Holy Sepulchre, you know. We're talking about the Abrahamic faith and monotheism. Well, there it is in Jerusalem. I see in, Je- in Israel a completely open society, irrespective of what these people would like uh, 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 the common Canadians to believe and our students to believe. Moscow saying their prayers. They're calling out for prayers. The churches are ringing the bell. You are a citizen of Israel, and if you are a Jew, you're part of the majority, and if you're not a Jew, well, you are a citizen of Israel or you're not a citizen of Israel. Now, it's a very complex situation because, as I say, Israel is, you know, trapped, surrounded Mm -hmm. by people who would like to basically eliminate Israel. None of us in this society can understand the pressures that that country is living through. Do they have the rights? Absolutely. I, as a Muslim, look back into the Quran and I see the the rights of Israel, that is, that Jewish people are sacrosanct. What has happened is these people the Arabs in particular, and it is their money and it is their propaganda that has now reached out to the Muslim world from Indonesia, Central Asia, to Sub-Saharan Africa, where there is no discussion, and most of these people have no sense of their history, want to deny the Jews their rights by using the Quran. And the the other argument nobody discusses. Mm -hmm. Now, actually, I'm very interested to find out 
how the pressure that has been put on you can also, it's the same kind of pressure that's put on the young Muslims in the West and how they are being converted into uh, terrorists, basically, and advocates for Sharia in a country that has embraced multiculturalism for, for good or ill. And uh, we're going to be talking about that a little more, but we're at the bottom of the hour. And we're just going to take a bit of a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about um, extremism here at home. We'll be back right after this. Tonight on Dispatches, an ideology of bigotry and intolerance spreading through Britain, with its roots in Saudi Arabia. We Muslims have been ordered to do brainwashing on women's rights. Allow the woman nutrition. If she doesn't wear hijab, we hit her. Gay rights. Take the homosexual man and throw him off the mountain. Living in a multicultural society. You have to live like a state with the state till you take one. And holy war. The pinnacle, the crest, the summit of Islam is jihad. A dispatcher's investigation has uncovered a fundamentalist message spreading from the Saudi Arabian religious establishment through mosques run by major UK organizations which claim to be dedicated to moderation and to dialogue with other faiths. Green Lane Mosque in Birmingham is a high-profile mosque and one we'd heard receives theological guidance from Saudi Arabia. Our reporter went undercover last summer, joining thousands of worshippers. He's staying anonymous. The theme of today's lecture is, don't believe in the arrests of alleged terrorists without proof, as non-Muslims are liars. I don't believe it, because they are kuffar, and the lying is part of their religion. Kuffar is an Arabic word, meaning non-believer, an infidel. Unlike those kuffar, they do whatever they want to do. It's a term our reporter was to hear repeatedly being used in a derogatory way. They are liars. They are terrorists themselves. Liars. They will come before the people and talk, and they are lying. You can't believe them. These are pathological liars. Green Lane Mosque calls itself a center for interfaith communication, welcoming people of all religions. But our reporter filmed there over four months and found this speaker... Abu Usama was their main English language preacher. He says Christians and Jews are enemies to Muslims. And it comes to pass that we find the Nasara, the Yahud, America, the UK, France, Germany, they have come against the religion of Al-Islam. Why give up your deen and your long legacy of Al-Islam to please someone who is enemy to Thatcher's reporter investigated one of Britain's biggest and most mainstream mosques, Green Lane Mosque in Birmingham, uncovering a fundamentalist ideology emanating from the Saudi religious establishment. He found it promoting male supremacy. Condemning non-Muslims. We hate the Quran. 
We do not give obedient biblical fathers. I'm predicting a future jihad. The tables are going to turn, and the Muslims are going to be in a position of being uppermost and in strength. Now he was to discover how preachers trained in Saudi Arabia are spreading the same message around the country. Last summer, a two-week Islamic studies course was arranged at the mosque, and our reporter was accepted onto it. It was to be taught by clerics flown especially from the University of Medina in Saudi Arabia. But then it was cancelled at short notice. Our reporter went to their office to find out more. There, and the, the preacher Abu Osama tells him what the aim of the course was. Well, from what I know is, people were going to come to teach the course from Saudi Arabia. Part of the program was the students who did good, like the first three or top five students, were getting a scholarship uh, to go. That was part of the conditions that they had agreed with, with the professors who were coming, because the professors are from the University. Of, of Medina. Yes. The most devout worshippers at Green Lane are being offered scholarships to Saudi religious universities. It's for people like you. The aim is to train new preachers, according to Dr. Irfan Alalawi, who keeps his face hidden in interviews. Medina University is a very hardcore Wahhabi institution. Over the years, they have been giving bursaries to students from the United Kingdom and throughout the world to recruit students to be brainwashed. Then they're trained to go abroad and teach their poison and inject it to others. Medina graduates are now spreading the word in mosques up and down the UK. Like Dr. Bilal Phillips, who says marrying girls before they reach puberty is permissible. Sheikh Suhaib Hassan, who preaches a future Muslim supremacy. And Abu Osama himself. This is one of the most important items, I think, on the Saudi radical agenda, to push out more hospitable types of religious leadership and replace them with firebrands trained and programmed in the major Saudi universities. Our reporter finds that Saudi-trained preachers are being promoted in DVDs and CDs throughout the UK. He found typical examples being sold in the car park at Green Lane Mosque. Children are buying them, and the stores are manned by local kids. Looking, brother. He buys a DVD of Sheikh Faiz, another Medina-trained preacher in which he preaches jihad. At the peak, the pinnacle, the crest, the highest point, the pivot, the summit of Islam is jihad. Welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. You can give us a call if you want to join our conversation. Call us at 519-661-3600. You can also find us on the uh, internet at um, justrightmedia.org where you'll find a, an archive of all the shows of Just Right, dating back many years. And in the studio today, we're joined with Professor Salim Mansour. We were talking about homegrown terrorism, the pressures of uh, certain factions in Western society. We just heard a clip from BBC Dispatches, which illustrated a very serious uh, indoctrination, a very serious program of propaganda uh, happening in uh, Great Britain, trying to persuade young Muslims to wage jihad, no bones about it. And I suspect, perhaps I'm wrong, but I suspect that similar things are going on in the United States and Canada. Is there anything that you, Salim, would like to say perhaps to those imams who may be uh, trying to instill a Saudi Arabian Wahhabism here in the West, or anything particularly to the young Muslims 
who may be influenced by such teachings. Would you, is there anything that you'd like to say to that? <laughs> well, Bob, I don't think any of the imams are going to pay a hoot to whatever I say. <laughs> I, wonder, my, I wondered at that, I wondered at that but, question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but here's the problem, Bob. <clears throat> the 9-11 report that came out after the 9-11 event, this was the U.S. government report, bipartisan. And I, I would urge all, all our listeners, if they have a moment, to go back and read that book. And I think it was one of the most uh, closely analyzed, historically contextualized piece of document. It's just a wonderful document to understand not only 9-11, but the entire culture, the entire history that brought about 9-11 and what we are facing with. The point that I want to make here very quickly is that the 9-11 report talked about that the enemy we are fighting is Islamism. Islamism as opposed to Islam. Islam, that's right. That is, is that is Islamism as a political ideology. It's the ism, ism part of it. That's, that's, right. that's what we keep saying. Like Bolshevism, right. yeah. socialism. Ism, yes. Yeah. And, and, and what has happened is, and in fact, Islamism is a political ideology, a global political ideology, mobilized globally with a center, of course, in the petrodollar kingdoms of Saudi Arabia and the Iranian Republic and Libya, etc., etc. But we have to understand this. And what has happened is that in the mosque, and in the institutions that are related to the mosque in the Arab Muslim world or here right in Canada, that is the, the mosque-related schools, mosque-related colleges or, or chaplains coming from the mosque right into our university here, right here in the University of Western Ontario. It is when they're talking about Islam, actually they're talking about Islamism and that's the code and we do not understand it. Their entire politics and culture is what is being delivered in the name of Islam, but it is Islamism. That is, they have a particular goal and a particular uh, uh, object. Now, inside the mosque, most people that are non-Muslim, you, Bob, and you, you, you have no idea what happens. What happens is that there is no culture of discussion, no culture of listening and accepting and, and, and having a given back and forth or, uh, say, a dissenting opinion. A dissenting opinion would be a minority opinion, say a woman saying something or, say, a guy like me saying something. There is no room for it, you know. There is no discussion. People who go to the mosque, they go to the mosque but they say every Friday or regularly. They go there, they sit, and they listen to what is delivered to them, and you you ran a clip about it, you know. And if people disagree with it, there's no room for that. They Mind you, be... that sounds like the Catholic Church that I went yeah, to yeah, as a boy. It's Pre not much different. Precisely, but the Catholic Church got reformed. Yeah. <laughs> well, but we didn't have the discussions in the mass. We had to yeah, listen to the well, priest. Well, right, but the Catholic Church doesn't engage now in trying to make Catholicism the state religion of, say, United States or Canada, and so on and so forth. You know, so this is what is is the culture. Whether you are in Morocco, whether you are in Indonesia, as I have been and there is no room for it and so this agenda and the, and then the, the the question of sharia as i talked to you what is the sharia it is a legal codification of a culture from the 9th 10th 11th century the very fundamental basis of that is in opposition to the modern world it is a culture which clearly divides between a believer in this case a muslim and a non-believer who are all second rank status right it's a difference between a man and a woman and the highest category in this world World is a believing man over a non-believing woman, you know. So it is implicitly built into a structure that is totally at war or incompatible with the modern world. That's what we are facing. And 
our political leaders and our institutions don't know how to contend with it. Well, this brings us to, to, I guess, coming back home to Canada here. We've embraced multiculturalism, um, both officially and unofficially, I would say. Um, and it's funny that you you're, you're, you're keep referring to the word culture because that's where we've ended up as well, haven't we, Robert? We keep yes. talking about what needs to be developed is a freedom culture. And I think that's what I'm going to be spending the rest of my life working on. Uh, you suggest in an article on um, that you wrote in February of this year, uh, Lies, Damn Lies, and Multiculturalism, that proponents of multiculturalism do not use an objective standard and include all cultures are equal. And you refer to the culture of a liberal de- democracy, that is, a culture based on individual rights and freedoms, which is the culture we talk about on this show all the time. And you suggest, therefore, that multiculturalism is based on a lie because the idea of equality of, of sex is equality, you know, rule of law and all those things do not exist necessarily under that system. I also found interesting that you, found, that you would def, um, define a liberal democracy, or let's say freedom, as the summit of political philosophy, as would I. And so that you're, and here's something I've said in the past, I've never heard anybody else say this, and I'm quoting, from this summit of individual rights and freedoms, any advance, ironically, can only mean going downward to an inferior or relatively degraded political arrangement. This is exactly what I've been saying. I said, like, once you reach freedom, where do you go from there as a political ideal? You, to continue from there means going backwards again. Is that perhaps what's happened to the Western world a bit? We, 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 we 19th century, early 20th century, we came as close as we could have come in recent history to freedom, capitalism, and all, you know, a consensual society, and one in which we, um, you know, uh, admire all these things and live by them, are we going backwards? And is, 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 is there a reason for that beyond... Well, well, my, my view is multiculturalism is a backward movement. It's not a forward movement. It's not an advance. Because as, as you re- read me, once we have affirmed and asserted, and that was the struggle, a 500-year struggle, of arriving at the idea of all men are created equal. Now we broaden it to all individuals are created equal precisely. Once we have established that idea, the key component is the individual. And then we then turn around and say we are going to embrace other cultures that do not value that position. What, what happens then? It is a degradation of the culture that emphasizes individual freedom. I mean, to me, and this is where the problem is, we cannot talk about it because somebody's going to call, if I say this, a racist. But the matter is simple. When you have a, something that is of a higher value, say milk, and something that is of not a higher value in that sense, water, and you start adding water to milk, water doesn't become milk. Yes. It is milk that gets diluted and, and, and starts you know, f- losing its quality. That's precisely what is happening. And finally, the Europeans are waking up. I mean, it is no coincidence that you know, the three major European powers. We in Canada, we want to say that, you know, we are more European than American. We want to keep our distance. It goes back to the Trudeau Mm -hmm. years and beyond. Somehow to maintain distance from America, to preserve our identity as, you know, a country, we look towards Europe. Well, you have Germany, you have Britain, and you have France. 
Angela Merkel, David Cameron, and Nicolas Sarkozy have all come out and said multiculturalism as an official policy has failed. When will our leaders wake up, that is in Canada, and recognize? In the United States, the issue of multiculturalism doesn't exist. That's what the Democratic Party would like to do. That's mm -hmm. the rainbow coalition. But then they have to change the constitution. It's still a constitution of all men are created equal. Okay, But here in Canada, we have swallowed this lie, as I call it, hook, line, and sinker. Instead of Canada maintaining the very fundamental basis of classical freedom, which both Johnny MacDonald and Wilfred Laurier spoke about and defended, we have a situation where we are sliding away from that position. Well, let's take a quick slide away right now, uh, back into the Canadian situation. We'll take a quick listen in on just a few clips from the recent leaders' debate a couple days ago. And uh, I noticed that uh, Harper did bring up our planes flying in Libya, but, you know, the issue of us being in Libya never came up once in, a, in, in the federal election campaign. I thought maybe that's an issue. Let's listen in for two or three minutes, and we'll finish up the show talking about the Canadian election. We'll be back right after this. The current jets we have flying over Libya today, the CF-18s, will reach the end of their life at the end of this decade. What we have decided to do, and by the way, what other parties have always said in the past they support, is replacing those jets at the end of their life. What we know, Mr. Harper, is that the billions of dollars that you want to spend on these jets down the road will have to come from health care and education and child care and things that people need here in Canada today. That's where the money will have to come from. Uh, you have failed to win a seat on the Security Council. You achieved nothing at the G8, G20. You shut down inde every independent organization that's trying to do good in Africa or Asia if it disagrees with your ideology. Those cuts are still coming and they're very, very costly. And I'm asking myself, because I'm remembering a Stephen Harper once upon a time, who was, came here to change Ottawa, was going to stick up for the little guy. But you've become what you used to oppose. You've, you've changed in some way. We do this for ordinary Canadian families. That is our focus. That's why in our most recent uh, budget, the next phase of the Economic Action Plan, we're maintaining transfers for health care. It's why, we're why we wanted to eliminate uh, the cap on medical expenses for, uh, for ordinary people in the tax system. It's why we wanted to have incentives for doctors and nurses to go to this underserved areas. These are the things that were in the economic action. The yeah. old Jack Layton would have supported those things instead of forcing an election that nobody wanted. In an election we didn't want. In an election Canadians didn't want. We're asking Canadians to make the decision. Do you want to have this kind of bickering? Do you want to have another election in two years? Very or do you want bickering? This is a debate, Mr. Harper. This is democracy. We have before Parliament measures to help our most vulnerable senior citizens, measure to give uh, credits, uh, tax credits to families for arts programs, to help to extend work sharing, which is uh, save the jobs of 300,000 workers, measures to help our manufacturing sector. Once again, 20, that's what we want. 20 seconds left in this segment, Mr. Layton. Passing, that's the mandate. Well, Mr. Layton, I, I, I have word. to pick up on something Mr. Gnadiev said. He said before you have to walk the walk and you have to be a strong leader and respect Parliament. I've got to ask you then, why do you have the worst attendance record in the House of Commons of any member of parliament. If you want to be prime minister, you better learn how to be a member of parliament first. You know, most Canadians, if they don't show up for work, they don't get a promotion. 
Mr. Layden, I don't surrender to anybody in my respect for the institution of Parliament and my obligation to the people who put me there. So don't give me lessons about respect for democracy. Well, don't give you? me lessons. Where don't were give you me lessons I was for there standing up to Mr. Harper and voting against his policies, and you weren't in the chamber. Oh, you, were, you missed 70 percent of the votes. Our I think you need was, to understand a little bit more about how our democracy works. That's my only point. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> Not only did he miss Parliament, he's missed uh, country. Yeah, he's lived out, out of the country. In I thought that was, that was one of the lowest hits in the whole, whole debate the other night <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah. But isn't it interesting that here we have, we're in the middle of a national debate. Canada is, are we officially at war? Or are we not? What What is our status, and how come we're not even talking about it in an election? Well, it, it is a very troubling situation. At least it, it troubles me greatly, you know. Uh, uh, why are we in Libya? What is our interest? Are we a country that simply salutes and march on the orders of others, in this case NATO and, and the United Nations Security Council resolution? And if that's so, then what is the place of our own parliament? What is the place of our own democracy? The fact that uh, our, our prime minister and none of the other party leaders questioned and challenged him that he didn't bring this matter into the House of Commons. Well, actually, you know, Salim, was it the last show? No, a couple of shows before I actually brought up the fact that Mike Ignatiev was actually one of the co-authors of the responsibility to protect doctrine that the uh, United Nations has adopted, which put us into this situation. Uh, uh, of course, uh, he's not going to bring uh, it up. Absolutely, but the document, responsibility to protect, does not mean our parliament vanishes or That's is right. airbrushed yeah. away. That's correct, yes. Uh, you know, because there is a question of our budget, our question of our putting our men and women on, on the front line, question of financing them. So when, when uh, Jean Chrétien said no to George Bush, the no came on the basis of a parliamentary vote. Whether we as individual Canadians agreed with that vote or not is beside the point. We respect that vote. We wanted that debate, and, and Jean Chrétien did that, you know. And subsequently, the dispatch of troops to Afghanistan was also based upon a vote. It was a vote that, that the Liberal Party brought, and, there were, and the Liberals had the majority in the House, and they voted for it. I, I'm extremely troubled in the fact that the media is not talking about it. Mm -hmm. you know? So it, it shows... What is happening in the dumbing down of our process? No. Why is it that the Canadian population itself is not outraged? If, if it were up to Salim Mansour, what would be the biggest issues being discussed in the Canadian uh, election today? Well, there, there, I mean, everybody talks about health care, but I mean, uh, as no. long as I have been in Canada, I've been a Canadian, it's all, almost going to be 40 years, and I don't consider myself, by the way, a hyphenated Canadian. So, I mean, the health issue mm -hmm. has always been the issue. The election that you, Bob, and I stood there, remember yes. that, those Stockwell <laughs> days, standing in the de election debate with, with the, with the board, no, no, what was it? Two-tier. No two-tier health system. <laughs> no yeah, two-tier. So, uh, and, and that's become our default position when there's nothing else to talk about. I mean, uh, it, it, quite right. I mean, this election, nobody wanted, nobody asked for, and it was a huge miscalculation on the part of the opposition leader. And I think that's where this big surprise might very well come. I, I, I think if Mr. Harper gets the majority, this will be a tectonic shift, in my opinion, because it will be a majority that will come on the basis of English Canadian votes, you know, you have 75 seats well, out, of, out of 308. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
until now, that is, say, take the last 50 years of election or since the end of the Second World War, whoever formed the majority government in Canada, liberals and conservatives, the two parties, they always formed a majority government by winning substantive number of seats in Quebec, yes. out of 75 seats. So, Diefenbaker, Mulroney, that's the record. If Harper wins it, I think English Canada has come together now. That's an interesting way to break it down. I would have... I've always been looking at the debate as uh, which of the leaders is trying to outdo the other as far as being a socialist goes. And Harper is certainly winning that, I think, because I mean, he's just basically saying, I'm giving money to here, I'm giving money to this group, I'm giving money to that group. It's nothing but a socialist uh, free-for-all at this leaders' debate. But now you've brought this perspective of English and French, which I haven't really considered too much before, Which, but I think you're accurate well, about it. As I think of it, if what you say is true, then, would that not make... Quebec feel a little alienated if that should turn out that way? And well, if we end up with another minority... Well, then well in, my, in my view, I mean, that's what the Canadian media is going to do, which is basically mm -hmm. left-leaning, and that's what the Liberals and the NDP are going to talk about it. But when I say it's going to be a tectonic shift, main one... Quebec now has has to decide whether they'll keep sending, you know, a separatist party into Ottawa, which has no place then if there's a majority government, and Quebec is totally left out. So they have to decide. In English Canada, we, we haven't lost their affection for Quebec. We don't want to see Quebec's break away and separate. We want to protect Canadian con Confederation and go forward. But English Canada has deferred all along to the views of Quebec, and Quebec in the last, what, 15 years, 18 years? When was it, 1993, that Lucien Bouchard came to power with the bloc? In a, in, well, it goes back into the, into yeah. the last two decades. Change the dynamics, because neither of the two federal parties can win the majority in Quebec. And as a result, for the 2004 election till now, we have had minority government. And we would still have minority government if Quebec was in play. But if Harper wins without Quebec, that's what I mean. Mm -hmm. English Canada will have come. And now English Canada will have to be talked to by the political leaders. Our demands are different. I think then the issue of whether, you know, uh, all of English Canada is up for Jack, Jack Layton's. You know, we are, we are basically stuck to his mammary gland of, you know, throwing mammary. <laughs> or, or, or we want to cherish the freedoms, you know. Mm -hmm. That will now take on a new debate. I, I, I think so. It's interesting because part of the the discussion we've been having here is that the three parties are so much alike that that's why we're not seeing a substantive debate on the issues themselves. It right. becomes instead an issue of popularity, of, of, of personality, and of not that much difference in which direction each of the governments are going in. Do you see it, or, or each of the parties? Do you see any, would you say there's a big difference in direction between the conservatives? No, no. I mean, I mean, that's where I think, I think those of us who are conservatives or classical liberals, we are disillusioned, you know. I mean, that's well, what you're expressing. And, and, join, and, and, join the and club. That's <laughs> that, that we do not have that critical division in Canada. We are all for big government and big government means intrusive government. So where individual freedom is concerned, that is shrinking to the point that, you know, we are concerned about it. At least some of us are concerned about it. Yeah, I think that's why, too, that we hear the terms, you know, too much bickering in Parliament. You know, they call it bickering. It should be debate, yeah. says Ignatius. <laughs> well, it would be a debate if you had two, two different issues, issue, yeah. you know. But other than that, all you've got left is bickering. And unfortunately, that's all we've got left for today, uh, Salim. Can you believe it? That hour just blew right by. Yes, hey, thanks for coming, Salim. That was uh, um, a really excellent I was discussion. just sitting here mesmerized. I was 
a little upset I was the host of the show <laughs> to ask well, questions. Well, thank you. Thank but, you, both of you. You know, uh, but for... That's all our time for today, and I guess we've got to head out of here now. So we hope that everyone will join us again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do. Be right, act right, stay right, and be right back here. We'll see you next week. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. May I present our minister, Mr. Hacker? This is Prince Mohammed. How do you do, Your Royal Highness? Pleased to meet you, Excellency. <laughs> Excellency. I think, if you'll excuse me, I just must have a quick word with Sir Humphrey. Uh, Please, uh, Highness. Can't believe my eyes. What do you hear as? Alibaba? <laughs> minister, when in Rome. We are not in Rome. Humphrey, you look ridiculous. Suppose if we were in the Fiji Islands, you'd be dressed in a grass skirt. <laughs> the Foreign Office takes the view that as the Arab nations are a very sensitive people, that we should show them whose side we're on. Well, it may come as a surprise to the Foreign Office, but you're supposed to be on our side. <laughs> <laughs>